much overshadowed with the references from the New Testament. Um, most people that are sitting in church pews these days, if you are to ask them about the Holy Spirit uh, or passages about the Holy Spirit, um, I can guarantee you 10 out of 10 times they're going to bring you to the New Testament. Um, most of the time they're going to bring you to the book of Acts or they'll bring you to uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, which talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church. Um, nobody is going to bring you to the Old Testament. Uh, one of the things that I hope in this class that people gather is that to understand what the Holy Spirit is doing in the New Testament era, you must have the Old Testament references to the Spirit behind you. Otherwise, none of this makes any sense. Why is it, or it just seems random, why is it that the Holy Spirit is involved with the ministry of John the Baptist? Why is it that the Holy Spirit is involved in the virginal birth of the Messiah? Why is it that when we come to the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form. The only time in all of history that we've seen the Holy Spirit in a bodily form. Why is that so significant? Uh, and so as we go into the Gospel of Luke, which will be our main uh, focus for the Gospels, we'll deal with some with, uh, some with uh, Matthew as we go forward. But the, the largest expression of what's been going on is going to be in the Gospel of Luke. And so we begin in chapter 1, of course, uh, with the foretelling of the birth uh, of John the Baptist. Now, I find it fascinating that in both the story of John the Baptist, the two parallel stories here at the beginning, the, the conception of John the Baptist and the conception of Jesus, both are impossible. Both of them make no natural sense whatsoever. Zechariah and Elizabeth were just like Abraham and Sarah. They could not have children when they were of childbearing age, and now they are well past that. And so the, one of the expressions that comes down is, how is it that one could expect that they would have a son? Zechariah, he is serving as a priest in Judea, uh, in, Judea in Jerusalem. His wife's name is Elizabeth. Morning. We're in Luke chapter 1. His wife's name is Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God. Luke chapter 1 verse 6 says, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes before the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. And so we are faced immediately with a couple that could not have children when they were of childbearing years, and now they are advanced in age. There's certainly no way that they could have children. Very, very similar to Abraham and Sarah. And so God comes and makes a promise. Again, we should be reminded of the stories of the Spirit of God interacting in the Old Testament. How is it that this all happened with Abraham and Sarah? It was not some natural, normal thing. In fact, when the promise was made, what was the reaction of Sarah? Does anyone remember? What's that? She laughed. She laughed. How is it that... Uh, that um, that Abraham, who's 100 years old, and Sarah, who is 90 years old, would be able to conceive uh, a son. That's, that's not the normal way that things interact. Nobody does that. Zechariah has a similar response, except for his is not laughter. It's actually to disbelieve and say that's not possible. That's not how this works. So let's read that section here, because uh, all in the midst of this are the references to the Holy Spirit that introduce us to what kind of ministry Jesus is going to have. Verse 8, chapter 1. While Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, this is interesting. 
because the choosing of things by lots is an old covenant manner to determine the will of God, right? Uh, the last reference we have to it is the day before the Holy Spirit was sent to the church. The, this was an old way of determining the law of the Lord. Casting of lots is basically, uh, it's an ancient form of dice, essentially. Uh, and you would get a yes or no answer. And so you would determine uh, a two-path road. Do I turn left or right by doing this? The book of Proverbs says that uh, the casting of lots uh, is from the hand and it casts into the lap and the Lord determines its outcome. This is one of the ways that God dealt with his people in the Old Covenant. And so this is not just by happenstance, but God actually working through the casting of lots to bring Zacharias, Zechariah into the temple. And that's where the Lord chooses to do this. Uh, it was his, it was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside uh, at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. Now, I will simply point out, not the angel of the Lord, that's different. An angel of the Lord is an important distinction. An angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, I want to stop here for a second. How long ago do you think Zechariah stopped praying for a son? A long, long time ago. They have been many, many years since they could conceive a son. How many times do you think he prayed in his life for a son while they were of childbearing years? Perhaps. And stopped maybe 20, 30 years ago. And here the angel shows up and says, your prayer is answered. The Lord has heard your prayer. I just want to point this out because this is something that kind of gets missed in the in the uh, expression here. This was a desire of Zechariah and Elizabeth for many years, and it hasn't been for a long time. They had given up, and here we have an answer to prayer, way out of sequence of what somebody intended. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, very, very similar to Abraham and Sarah, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now listen to this forecast. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It is the first and earliest reference we have to the Holy Spirit inside the Gospels. Because the expression comes down to the promise of John the Excuse me, John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, we will go on to learn that John the Baptist is the one that was foretold to make straight and level the path for the Lord, to prepare Israel to meet her God. This is something that is going to require the Holy Spirit. It is not a natural thing. Not only is his birth supernatural, but so is his ministry. There's nothing that John the Baptist is going to do that's just a natural continuation of of what has been going on. This is going to be something very unique because here's his job. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, meaning the Lord, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So all of this is to be saying he is going to be that Elijah character that's going to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. Zechariah's response to this is not out of sync with 
honestly probably how I would have answered this. How shall I know this? Basically prove it. I'm a man of advanced years. My wife is advanced in years. The angel answered them and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Same word for gospel, by the way. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, were out there wondering his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple as he kept making a sign to them and remained mute. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days that he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thus we have the first birth foretold, and the expression that the Holy Spirit would be present from him, uh, present, uh, and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Has that happened before? Have we ever had an unborn baby filled with the Holy Spirit in the history of the text? No. We've had a young boy all the way through his life. That's David. Yes, anointed. We've had ones intended from his mother's womb. Jeremiah was one of those. But as far as for the reference to the Holy Spirit filling him, even before he's fully sentient, we don't have that in the Old Testament. We're dealing with something new in kind. We have, a, we, we have an uptick of what's been going on. Now, we've had promised sons before. As we've mentioned, Isaac was promised in this manner. So was, can you think of another one? Where the Holy Spirit was specifically involved with foretelling that there would be coming one whose ministry the Holy Spirit would be largely involved with in the book of Judges and his birth completely foretold ahead of time? Samson, Samson very good. Samson's birth was foretold ahead of time. There's coming a one, a promised son, that will deliver his people. This was part of the part of the foreshadowing of things that goes on. And Samson, for all the things that happen in his life, with regards to Samson, in the book of Judges, nobody is discussed as having the Spirit of the Lord rush on him more than Samson in any specific way um, that is unique. And so we have all of these pictures, the spirit of Elijah coming, uh, the, the promise of Abraham coming in our minds, the deliverance of Samson, like all of these pictures are coming together, all the foretellings of the prophets, everything's kind of coming to a singular focus now with John the Baptist. And when we look at John the Baptist, we must necessarily look, what's his purpose? His purpose is not to bring the gospel to the world. His purpose is to prepare the way for the Lord to bring the gospel to the world. And so Luke immediately moves on to the next birth foretold. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, same angel, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. Now we have another impossible birth or conception. Not only do old ladies who are barren during childbearing years not conceive children, neither do virgins. These are two extremes of not able to conceive naturally. It doesn't work like this. The virgin's name was Mary, verse 28. And he came, oh, excuse me, she was a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, don't be afraid. Same thing that he said to Zechariah. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So notice in both cases, God names them both. I'm not going to sit here and 
uh, spend time in the meanings of the uh, name John, the meanings of the name Jesus. That's another study. Fascinating stuff. Cool parallels that are going on here. But notice the parallels here. Don't be afraid. The Lord's here. The Lord's going to do something. You will conceive. This will be the name of the son that you will conceive. You shall call his name Jesus. Now Matthew expands on that. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Um, That was what was said to Joseph in a dream later on. Uh, Again, backing up. It's not just Mary's word. Now we've got Joseph's word. Now we've got Elizabeth. We've got Zechariah. We've got John the Baptist. Again, witness after witness after witness after witness. When we're dealing with absolute supernatural things, we cannot just deal with the words. This is not just Mary coming up and saying, guys, um, I'm pregnant, but I didn't do anything wrong. This is not just Mary doing this. This is done in the presence of witnesses, multifocality. Everyone is coming together with something that is expressing that in multiple places, this is not normal stuff. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom There will be no end. Now that is a heck of a thing to learn all at once. Mary said to the angel, huh? How how will this be? Now we have a different response here than Zechariah. Zechariah goes, yeah, uh, prove it, dude, because this is way too out of left field for me. Mary comes up and goes, "How, how does that work? How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, And listen to his responses regarding the Holy Spirit. The angels answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And that is the overarching statement for the opening of the Gospel of Luke. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am your servant. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. What do you think of these references in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 35 here? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Anything kind of stand out to you for that? What's that? Yeah, overshadow. Can you think of another place where the Holy Spirit did this? Covered over something and brought life out of it. Remember, Holy Spirit, anytime you run into him, he's bringing life to non-life. Conception to a barren womb, conception to a virgin's womb. This is bringing life out of things. This is creation level stuff. Where, Where have we ever seen the Spirit of God overshadowing or hovering over something and bringing life out of it? The very first reference to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The the command that goes out to bring land out of the chaotic darkness where there was no life, and then we end up with life. This is what's going on here. This, This whole picture of the Spirit of God is going to do this. Now, how does the Spirit of God do this? In a word, creation. Miraculous creation from nothing. You do not have just more natural stuff here. This is not, you know, oh, uh, by your uh, by your betrothed or by your husband Joseph, you will conceive a son and, and the Lord will use him. That's been the way of it all along. This is completely unique. We have never seen such a thing like this. 
uh, throughout the scriptures. We do not see virgins conceiving. And by the way, we've never seen it again. Mary becomes pregnant, a brand new creation inside her womb. Now, if you're in Joseph's shoes, this is a very tough pill to swallow. Matthew includes that struggle that Joseph had. In fact, Joseph, one of the main characters, never says a single word in all of the scriptures. Uh, Fascinating thing. Every time an angel comes to him, it's always in a dream. It's never in person. Uh, Joseph's a really interesting character study here, but the only place that we're going to touch his story is in Matthew chapter 1. It's referring to this reality that, um, that Joseph really deeply struggled with this because the angel only came to Mary, didn't come to him. And so he's just going, and Matthew makes reference to says, you know, uh, Joseph was a devout man, not wanting to put her to shame, respected who Mary was. And he says, but, you know, according to the law, we can't, we can't get married. A betrothal in that time was as binding as marriage. Uh, so he actually had to divorce her before he married her. And that's what he says. I'm going to put her away quietly. I'm not going to make a spectacle out of all this. And that night he had a dream and the same angel came to him and says, don't. Don't be afraid, again, to take Mary as your wife. What's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And the son that she will have will be called the Son of the Most High. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's an inevitability of the outcome of his ministry. What the Spirit of God is doing is going to save people from their sins. Now, again, we have brand new language. This was not the main focus of the Old Testament. You do not have the, the depictions of salvation in the Old Testament primarily being salvation from sin. You have foreshadowings of salvation in this battle or salvation in uh, much larger senses or a city that's going to be destroyed and God is their refuge and God fights their battles for them. We have all sorts of things typified in the Old Testament. Here we have it uh, fully exposed. What is the purpose of God in this world? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the statement worthy of full acceptance that Paul says. And here, the Holy Spirit is involved intimately with this. In those days, verse 39, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country. I just want to show you how many different references to the Holy Spirit in the first chapter of Luke. Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, if this kind of crazy stuff is going to happen to you, nobody's going to believe you, except thankfully Joseph now, because the angels come to him as well. Where is the first place you're going to go? The angel said that Elizabeth has has conceived and she's going to bear a son. That's certainly something worth considering. Let's go there because she's going to believe us, obviously, because what's happened to her, if this is true, is beyond anything normal and the same for Mary. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Look at this. I love it when two members of the Trinity run into each other in the wild. This is just fantastic. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we have John the Baptist in, in before birth. How many of you have memories before you were born? Nope. A near unconscious level of existence, still able to recognize the presence of Jesus, who is, so if John the Baptist is, say, seven months along gestation, we're talking about a month old Jesus in the womb of Mary. Not showing yet, nobody really can see yet, nothing's going on. We're talking about Jesus being like this big, 
And John the Baptist, being seven months along in Elizabeth's womb, recognizes who that is from inside the womb. This is not natural stuff. There's nothing about this that Luke is saying, none of this is normal. None of this is natural. And by the way, I want you to think a little bit deeper about the Gospel of Luke. Luke, unlike Matthew, unlike Mark, and unlike John, um, was not an eyewitness to any of this. Matthew was an eyewitness to the vast majority of everything from Matthew chapter 4 onwards. Right? John was an eyewitness to everything. In fact, he bases it on his eyewitness account in chapter 1 of the book of John. Mark is writing down most likely a sermon of Peter, an eyewitness of all these things. Luke is very different. Luke went and interviewed everybody. He explains how he did it. He went and checked sources. He's a researcher, a really, really good historical researcher. Who is the only person that would be living long enough for him to interview about the happenings with all of this? Elizabeth and Zechariah were already well in advanced in age when John the Baptist was born. Joseph dies before Jesus's, um, before Jesus's uh, ministry. Who's the only one left? Mary. Almost certainly, chapter one and all the information comes from coming from it, as well as chapter two, comes from an interview with Mary. Because we know Mary outlived Jesus and was there uh, well advanced beyond. And Luke went and interviewed people that were involved in these stories. The only person that would be still living when Luke was writing this would have been Mary. Probably about 70 years old at that point. And Luke is writing all of these things based on these interviews. And what he is expressing here is that what happened scared Mary at first, and what's going on here is something that's simply out of normal sync with, re, uh, with normal reality. This is not something that babies inside the womb might be able to recognize when sounds happen or uh, react when spicy food is eaten by the mother or something like this, but perceiving things on the outside, and even more than that, perceiving somebody in the womb of somebody who's not even showing yet is kind of a remarkable thing. Uh, and Elizabeth responds to that. She exclaimed with a loud voice and says, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary sings a song of praise. Uh, the birth of John the Baptist happens, and Zechariah is able to speak again, and his prophecy comes down as well. Uh, Mary's song of praise, classically called the Magnificat, one of the one of the great uh, um, one of the great prayers uh, in in the scriptures, as well as Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, Mary's response is not told as being from the Holy Spirit, but Zechariah's is, and so we're going to launch forward to that. The birth of John. The, we're in Luke chapter one. The birth of John the Baptist happens. Uh, everyone comes to him on the eighth day when they came to circumcise him. And Zechariah goes, name him John. And everyone goes, there's nobody in your family named John. You can't really do that. And Zechariah says, don't, don't, don't tell me why I can't. His name's John. That's the end of the story. So then I went to go check with the mother. I think Zechariah is a little, you know, had it in the head or whatever. And Elizabeth goes, no, his name's John. We're going to call him John. That's what the angel told us to do. Zechariah responds. No, oh, okay, so Zechariah immediately, verse 64, says his mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. 
Now, he has not been able to speak for nine plus months. That's a pretty remarkable story. Uh, and fear came upon all the neighbors and all, all uh, the neighbors and all those who talked about this in all the hill country of Judea, and all heard them laid up these things in their hearts and saying, "What then will this child be?" For the hand of the Lord was with him, and the father, his father Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, here we have a message from the Holy Spirit. Now we've had what six references to the Holy Spirit here in the first chapter of everything that's going on in the foretelling of the of the conception of John the Baptist the foretelling of the conception of the uh, of, of Jesus in the womb of Mary and the overshadowing of Mary's womb the recognition between the holy spirit and the and the, the the third person of the trinity and second person of the trinity in two different wombs just a simply remarkable story so far and the holy spirit fills Zechariah so now we've had the holy spirit overshadowing Mary the Holy Spirit filling John the Baptist, even from his mother's womb. The Holy Spirit, when interacting with Mary, when she had just gotten pregnant with Jesus, so he's like one month along, John the Baptist is about seven months along. Elizabeth now is filled with the Holy Spirit while John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. And now his father, Zachariah, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And his natural response is to prophesy. It's very, very important to see what the Holy Spirit says through the mouth of Zechariah here. So let's see it. Verse 67, his father Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is the first thing he said in 10 months. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. They are all descendants of David, by the way. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And here he blesses John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's a remarkable prophecy regarding John the Baptist because it encapsulates everything that he was being sent to do. He was going to prepare Israel to meet her God. And all of these things, again, the conception of John the Baptist being paralleled to the story of Abraham and Sarah. We have a barren couple that, even when they were of childbearing years, could not conceive. Now, well advanced in years, God specifically chooses those that naturally cannot do any of these things. The same with the virgin birth. There's no way for a virgin to conceive. We choose impossible things, and then God makes very, very clear that these things are being done because nothing is going to be impossible for the Lord, and he's going to ensure that we see that. That is actually explicitly stated in verse 37, to just remind you of that. Nothing will be impossible with God. He specifically chooses impossible natural situations to bring about supernatural salvation. This is going to be a theme throughout the entire Gospel of Luke. And the Holy Spirit of God is going to be involved on every level of this. He's going to use natural things to bring about supernatural results. And as we know, the Holy Spirit is focused on life. 
And so what are the supernatural results going to be? It's not going to be natural situations bringing about natural salvations. No, it's going to be natural situations bringing about supernatural salvations. And so we're going to expect that by the time we come to the end of the Gospel of Luke, it really shouldn't surprise us if we're paying attention that a natural death on a natural cross brings about supernatural results. And the supernatural results that the Spirit of God is always involved with is bringing life from death. Why is his name Jesus? He's going to save his people from their sins. Supernatural problem, but how are we going to do this? Through bizarrely natural, creative means. There is no way a a woman well advanced in years conceives a child unless God is creating something unique. There is no way a virgin conceives unless God is doing something completely unique. In one instance, the miracle was being done on her womb. In the other instance, the miracle was being done on the one conceived. And so we have in Jesus of Nazareth, not something like John the Baptist. John the Baptist himself is just a man, conceived in a supernatural situation in his mother's womb. But Jesus is on a whole nother level, because now we don't even have a man involved. We have the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. Very similar language, as we pointed out from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. We go to the chaotic world, the primordial world of Genesis chapter 1, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters and bringing forth life out of chaos and death, or just non-life. And that's what's happening with Mary's womb. He doesn't have a man involved with this. Now we have a woman to bring about the human side, and we have something completely unique, completely different, where we end up with Jesus himself not being just a man like John the Baptist, nor is he just God. And I say that as reverently as I can. He is both fully. And how we can understand that is, 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 a, is a matter of theological disputation for many, many centuries. How is that even possible? And people have tried to express it in multiple ways. Here, obviously, if he's born of a virgin, we've got one, who's, uh, one who is man and one who is God. And we've tried to say things that are paradoxical, like he's 100% man and 100% God, so he's like 200% or something. That's not how Scripture puts it. Uh, that's not how the creeds put it. That's not how the canons put it or even any of the councils of the church. How we've always historically referred to this, he is truly man and truly God. And we leave it at the mysterious of how in the world God actually did that is outside of our frame of reference. We just don't know. And I think it's good for us to find where we don't know, where scripture stops talking to us, and we say, that's enough. Theories beyond here become problematic because they're based in us trying to understand what really makes a man and what really makes God. In essence, we just don't know. But we have the birth of Jesus Christ foretold. Everyone knows this story from Luke chapter 2. You know, the decree that goes out from Caesar Augustus. We read this every Christmas Eve. Shepherds, glory to God in the highest, all the hosts of uh, angels of the heavenly hosts, and all these things. You'd think that the story of the Holy Spirit would kind of take a hiatus now. I mean, we've had just the Holy Spirit involved with every single character so far uh, because of the significance of what is happening. Now, I want you to understand how different that is. We just went from the minor prophets to Luke. For us, we just bridged, well, two weeks, because I wasn't here last week. For us, that happened in two weeks. For them, it was 500 years. Silence. 
He said, well, it just wasn't any profits or something like this. No, no, no. They wrote about this and were thoroughly frustrated with the silence from the spirit, which they called the voice. Where is the voice of the prophets? There's no prophets coming anymore. And a lot of people theorize that God just has simply given up on them because the temple wasn't good enough. There was a lot of theories on this and the rise of the synagogues and the, the focusing on the scriptures because there was no prophet in the towns. There was nobody going out warning. There was nothing like this. So all we could do, and they wrote about this, was uh, called in Hebrew the bat kol, which is the daughter of the voice. In other words, we just go back and study what the voice, the Holy Spirit, what the voice had said to us beforehand. Because when God is silent, you have to look back to what he has said beforehand. By the way, if that sounds familiar, the church age is a silent period where we don't sit here and try to go, what do you think the Holy Spirit is saying today? What do you think the Holy Spirit? It's not about that. We're in a silent period. And so we go back to what God has said and we seek to understand it. That's why we study the scriptures all the time, because the scriptures is where God has spoken past tense and speaks today to the hearts of his people as the spirit gives them understanding and illumination. All of this is changing. We have had nothing involved with the Holy Spirit as far as anyone's aware of publicly for half a millennium at this point. And everyone is wondering, and they're all focused on the Messiah, but those who are learned in the law, those who are learned in the prophets, bemoan this reality that the Spirit of God has just stopped speaking. Did we do something wrong? Is something out of sync? And Israel experiences more uh, captivities, some of them worse than the previous captivities of Babylon and Persia. And God is not sending any prophets like Ezekiel or Daniel in their exiles. When the Greeks come over and take over all the Persian lands, we got nothing. No prophet. No one saying, don't worry, a remnant will continue. Nothing. When the Romans come and take over the Greeks and take over Israel again, and the Romans make full occupation, no prophet, no word from the Lord, nothing. Silence. Utter silence. And they are absolutely and thoroughly confused. And to add insult to injury, right around the time that all of this is happening, there's an uptick of something brand new. Demon possession. And they are trying to figure out, we don't have the spirit of God anymore. Now we have evil spirits. How do we, how do we manage this? And the Pharisees try to deal with all sorts of manners and ways and incantations and herbs and things to try to get rid of evil, evil spirits because they don't know what in the world is happening. And if you've ever read the entirety of the Old Testament, how many times do you see evil spirits and demons show up? Zero. It was not a problem back then. Now, we can talk forever and a day about why that changed, I'll give you a little introduction as to why that changed. It was an anticipation of the incarnation of Christ and an imitation of this to dilute the attention of the people. This is why Jesus is so focused on exorcisms and casting out demons with a word, because that may look like you have somebody controlled by an evil spirit, and that's out of your control. I don't need spells. I don't need incantations. I can just command them. You say, well, how is that different than him commanding us? He does not compel our obedience. He does compel their obedience. When he commands them to go into the swine, or he commands them to leave this person and go into the abyss, they do. Because here we are dealing with the Lord, not only of earth, but of heaven itself. And so when we see 
so many things changing, so many things coming to a head. We, we have pictures of Abraham. We have pictures of Elijah. We have pictures of the forerunners of the virgin that was foretold in, in the book of Isaiah of the servant and how all of these things will be and the frustrations of the fact that the people of God are still struggling with their own sins and yet they don't even have occupation of their own lands. Evil spirits are running around. The temple is not being taken care of in the right way. Herod is in charge of the temple and Herod has made leagues with our enemies Everything is bad all over the place and the Spirit of God is not speaking. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is speaking to just just about everyone. This is the feeling that you should get from reading the Gospel of Luke. The Spirit of God just all of a sudden starts speaking and working everywhere. And then we're introduced to one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture in in chapter 2, verses 22. The time of the purification according to the law of Moses... uh, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. By the way, there's all sorts of things that are to be offered uh, during the sacrifice of purification for the woman who first has a son. Um, The fact that they're offering two doves or uh, two pigeons means that they're exceptionally poor. That's how we know that Mary and Joseph were not well off, this one verse here, because there was all these stipulations. If you were very wealthy, it was a cow, it was this, it was, and then it stepped down all the way to, if you cannot afford any of this, just bring two pigeons. And so they bring two pigeons, and Simeon, one of my favorite characters, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was also upon him. What? It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Now now we get this, this past tense response. It almost seems like it happens before Jesus is conceived, before the prophecies are made about John the Baptist or anything. The Holy Spirit comes and tells Simeon that all of this is going to happen before you die. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he walks up to him, takes him up in his arms, and blessed God. Now I'm going to read his his little prophecy here in a second. Simeon is one of my favorites because he doesn't fit any mold, New Testament or Old Testament. He is, he's like standing in this gap where everything's about to turn and he is the one told about it. We are not told why he is told about this, why nobody else is told about this. We don't have any of his backstory other than he is a righteous and devout man. And we have in rapid succession, three references to the Holy Spirit, all wrapped up in the four verses introducing this man. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the time that Israel would be consoled. Basically, Israel is mourning, when will there be joy? He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and the Holy Spirit had spoken to him. This is not like he had a feeling in his gut, uh, you know, oh, I feel a leading this and that. By the way, none of that is biblical language, even the New Testament. That is all Modern church stuff that that has nothing to do with the scriptures. There's not just this kind of gut feeling and I guess this works and that we'll call it the Holy Spirit. No, that's our conscience. 
There's nothing wrong with our conscience, necessarily, as long as it's informed by Scripture, which is where the Holy Spirit actually speaks and has spoken. And so when he's expressing here, this isn't him just kind of sitting under a tree going, man, I I feel like God's telling me that I'm not going to die until I see the Lord's Christ. That's not happening. The Holy Spirit had actually come and spoken to him verbally and directly and revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's, Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now, how did he do that? I don't know. I don't know. We don't have his story told with regards to that. How does that work? It's kind of like asking how, uh, you know, how someone who's writing scripture feels while they're writing scripture. Does it feel different than writing like a regular book? Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. All I know is that the spirit of God does his thing in ways that are beyond our perception. He came in the spirit into the temple when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He doesn't ask. He doesn't get introduced. He recognizes, just like John the Baptist in the womb, Jesus from afar, without doubt. How? Because he was in the Spirit. And the Spirit of God had orchestrated that this would occur and gave him this prophecy. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, now this is him in the Spirit, which in the New Testament is key for we're about to hear Scripture. Which means now, I mean, it's easy for us to see this because it's here in the Gospel of Luke. But at the moment, while Mary and Joseph are there witnessing this, and again, based on the interviews, who is this information coming from? It's coming from Mary. Simeon responds with scripture. This is straight from the mouth of the Spirit of the Lord. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, I want you to stop right there. Nobody in Israel believed that. Not one person believed that the Messiah was here for the Gentiles and for Israel. This is not Simeon sitting around going, you know, I think, I think, I think the salvation of the Gentiles is the main purpose of the Messiah. Nobody knew that. You know why? Because the Old Testament didn't say that. The Old Testament gave hints to it, but Paul calls it the mystery of the salvation of the Gentiles. Mystery in Greek means undisclosed. God did not tell us that this was the plan back in the Old Testament. He didn't. This was something new to us in Jesus. And here, Simeon is picking up on it when Jesus is weeks old, months old maybe. a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In other words, he is going to break down the dividing wall and save both and make one new man out of the two. Exactly what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 30 says. That's amazing because that is not a natural understanding. This is the first time the Holy Spirit talks about the salvation of the Gentiles in explicit formation. Which means, my friends, unless you are Israelites uh, or you are Jews by nature or ethnicity, this is the first time where God actually reveals that he has an intention to save you. That's a remarkable statement. And it's made while Jesus is still a baby, and it's made by a man who lives in Israel that simply knew that the consolation, the time where Israel would find its full joy 
in the person of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed and chosen one, would have ramifications for not just the people of Israel, but it would actually save the Gentile world as well. Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said about him. Because again, why would they marvel? Nobody believed that. Nobody knew that. Joseph and Mary have had a unique story with their son, but they're kind of trucking along. There's like, okay, now it's time for us. The days of our purification are over. We're a few months along. Uh, Jesus is a few months old, just a cute little bouncy baby boy. And we're going to the temple to offer in the sacrifices that are required of us. And all of a sudden, from their perspective, again, Mary is telling the story to Luke by all accounts. This man just walks up out of nowhere and picks up their son and says, the world will be saved through this one. Not just Israel, but all the Gentiles. A light, revelation, salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples. And the response is that his father and his mother marveled at it was said about him. And Simeon turned to them and blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, again, we're dealing with interviews from Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now, this is, this is further things. Nobody really expected that the Messiah would come and actually draw dividing lines between people in Israel and then break down the dividing lines between Gentiles and Israelites. In other words, he's going to save people, not in natural or ethnic, uh, ethnic lines or anything like this. He's going to save people supernaturally based on the image of God. And this is why Luke connects him not just back with Abraham in his genealogy, but all the way back to Adam. This is going to be a salvation that is enacted not just for the people of Israel. This is going to be not just the king of Israel sitting in Jerusalem. This is going to be the king of kings sitting on the throne of heaven. And this child, he says to them, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In other words, there's going to be a lot of people in Israel that reject him. A lot. And for a sign that is opposed, he's going to, uh, you know, even his own ministry is going to typify the age that is to come after him, the age that we currently live in. In other words, the same way Jesus says this, uh, um, the persecutions that come to him are typified to our expectations. They hated me first. If you follow me, they're also going to hate you. You see that continuation, that connection. All of this is connecting through this idea that there, uh, th- uh, there's going to be a vast majority of people in Israel that hate him, and there's going to be a vast majority of people in the Gentiles that love him. That is the source of God's salvation in the midst of all of these things. That everything is going to hinge, not on ethnicity or belongingness or what city walls you live in, but on what Christ is going to do with you. Everything has just shifted. Everything. And Simeon is able to see this ahead of time, not because he studied the scripture so much, because this is not taught in the Old Testament, but simply because God used him to bring about something he did not fully understand. And when he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, he never saw the church age. He never saw Jesus on the cross. He never saw him risen from the dead. He had no idea how that was going to work out. All he knew is that it hinged on this baby. That's it. That's what the Holy Spirit is obsessed with here at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He is focused squarely on the baby Jesus. 
Why? Because the Holy Spirit, who is he? What's his main role? He's the giver of life. And if he's going to bring life on a supernatural level, it is going to be by the one who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Which means, for the church age, let me just bring application directly into this here at the end of class this morning. If we are to be a church that calls ourselves bearers of the Spirit of God and says we are indwelled in the body with the Spirit of the Lord and we are not focused squarely on Christ, then we are lying. The Holy Spirit squarely focuses his people's focus on Christ only, not on their culture, not on leaders, not on some new fad, none of these things. They're infatuated with Christ. Now that will look different in every decade. It will look different in every year. It will apply in trillions of ways. But for a church to claim that they are filled with the Spirit of God, they are going to be focused on Christ and none other, just like Simeon is. He's one of those, he's one of those characters that remind us of, of the focus of these things. How is it that God's bringing salvation? What was it enough for him? He's like, I'm ready to die. Why? Because I've seen this person, this person called Christ. It is on him that people will stumble and fall. It is on him that many will rise and fall. It is on him that the light of the revelation to the Gentiles will occur, the salvation, the consolation of Israel. It is on him that everything turns. And so his focus, his entire life's focus, having the Spirit of the Lord is on that baby. And not because he's said a single word or done a single work. It is on his very person, who he is and what he is here to accomplish. The church, just like the scriptures, should be just as focused on Christ as Simeon is, just as focused as the scriptures are. Because as we see now, we see not only as the Holy Spirit throughout all the scriptures looked forward to the coming of Christ, everything from Moses to the prophets, now with the gospels, all four of them focus squarely on the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. All of the things that come after that look back to the person of Christ and say, what have we learned? Who is he? And what is this salvation that he has brought? Look at any of the epistles. They are just infatuated and filled with languages about Christ. What has he done? What has he accomplished? What has his death done? How has that brought us life? How kind of what kind of hope can we have in the midst of that? How does that affect our fellowship? How does that affect our evangelism? How does that affect our attitude and, our, and, and the way we interact with the Holy Spirit, which changes again after his ascension? All of these things will come to a head in the Gospels and in the, the opening of the, gospel, uh, of the book of Acts. When, when, when we see, now we haven't even gotten to the ministry of Christ yet. We're just, Jesus is just still months old. But we are dealing with so many aspects of what the Holy Spirit is doing that through John the Baptist, through Zechariah, through Elizabeth, through Mary, through the the speakings to Joseph, the sending of the angels, the speakings and uh, revelations to Simeon, the filling of Simeon, the prophecies of both Zechariah and Simeon, everything is focused on this baby who hasn't done anything yet. It is setting a table for an unbelievable feast that we are about to enjoy in the ministry of Christ. And we will see when we come back that when Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his ministry in chapter 3, we will see the only instance where the Holy Spirit comes in bodily form as a dove and alights 
on the shoulders of Christ. We hear the Father call out from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All three members of the Trinity, they're perceived with the five senses, a remarkable thing. And we see the ministry of Christ bringing life into this chaotic world, bringing miracles that are on par with the creation of the world. You do not make a lame man walk again unless you can create brain synapses and muscles and balance and everything in a man who doesn't know and have any of those things. You do not, you do not look at a blind person and rub mud in their eyes and it brings them sight. That's not a natural thing. That's creation. That's saying you were made from the dust and I will make your eyes from the dust of the ground. That all of these things call back to Genesis. I am the creator of the world. I am the giver of life. I am life itself. Uh, and we will see all of these things because the Holy Spirit is involved with every single one of them throughout the ministry of Christ. And there is not a single thing that Jesus does without the power of the Spirit of God in his ministry. He lives his life for about, as Luke says, about 30 years. And then the baptism of Christ, the Holy Spirit alights on him. And from that day forward, just like David, he has the Spirit of the Lord all the way up until we see a bifurcation there. The Spirit of God could not come until Jesus ascended to the Father. Remember that language? Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord was on him. And when he returns to the heavens, the Spirit of God comes to the church, and we enter a brand new age for the church. Um, and and we will see all of these things, because massive transitions are about to happen. Um, let, let's pray and close it out here. I could continue going on. It's amazing. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this day. We are thankful that the Spirit of God has not left us to just simply wonder what he has said, but here we have your scriptures. As your word says, holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from you. We are grateful for these words. We pray that we hold them with the highest of regard, that we learn from them, that we submit to them, Father, that we desire the same for one another. We thank you that your spirit has continually focused the church upon Christ. For we are so easily brought in by our own desires and our own uh, goals and aims. We pray, Father, instead that Christ would be our goal, that he would have the preeminence, and that we would be satisfied with him because we know you are also satisfied with him. We are grateful for this day. May Christ be well-pleasing in our eyes as he is in yours. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.